Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. My name is Sean Tiber. I am a coder who teaches. And my name is Kelly Schuster Paredes and I am a teacher who codes. Well, Kelly, we're sitting here around your dining room table this week because <laughs> it's still, thankfully, summer for a few, uh, another week or two. And we're about to get back to, to school. So today we're going to talk about building lessons and planning the curriculum for computer science. Yes, we have, a, we have an interesting, we have a change up from last year of how we're going to structure our, our classes. We're switching roles a little bit and you're taking on a new grade level, you know, change it up. And so, <laughs> and you know, the other thing is, our students now have a year of Python under their belts in the seventh and eighth grade. So our sixth graders are still getting introductory Python uh, instruction, but our seventh and eighth graders have already had one course. So now, what do we do next for them? Is our big that's our big question for this year? Yeah, and it's going to be a fun it's going to be a fun year. I can't wait to to get the hands on our seventh and and co teach with you in a course so that we can plan together. So this is one of the aspects that we're going to have, we're going to talk about in this podcast, it's I think. pretty exciting. Well, before we get to that, let's start where we always do with the wins of the week. So Kelly, what's your win this week? What's been your big win? I know you've been working through a lot of your own professional development when it comes to coding and banging your head against the table. I think there's an indentation like right there <laughs> from some of the code you've been trying to figure out. This is the spot where I always code. We talk a lot. We joke about not in recording, but we've talked about how we always sit in one spot to record. This is my, or to code, this is my spot where I code, and I'm always here. Um, my win of the week, well, I'm still not finished with my Udemy course with Colt Steel, but I've made a lot of progress with that. Finishing up, I'm over halfway, which is huge. And then because, you know, learning's never enough, I started with my, with PyBytes, and I did three PyBytes yesterday, which was a huge win for me. And I powered through them with a little bit of grit and <laughs> perseverance, and I got three Pi bites, and I tweeted about that. So that was great. Julian and Bob actually texted us and uh, saw that I was on the on the site. So it was pretty cool that they see new new people entering that site. So I recommend that. That was a good win for me. Yeah, that's what I really like about Pi bites and and Code Challenges, the two sites that Bob and Julian run is that they're very responsive and they're always looking for ways to make it a very personal learning experience. I think they do that exceptionally well. I know that one of the things that was kind of cool when I was working through the 100 Days of Code uh, project was that uh, Julian recorded a personal video message for me when I finished one of the uh, big challenges. And that was kind of an awesome thing. That I know they're trying to make more of a systemic approach where that as you reach certain milestones in the course, you get a little, you know, personal video acknowledgement saying, "Hey, you made it to, you know, day ni 19 or day 32 or whatever the big, the big one was," and that really helps students feel motivated and that someone's actually watching. That there's that accountability also, um, and support to get it done. Yeah, that, it's it's quite nice, and and I think it's like most of the community in Python, they are hard workers. And so putting that little bit of extra effort in what they do is what makes them Pythonistas, I think. Mm -hmm. So for me, I had kind of an, a, an amazing experience. Uh, last week, there was a rocket launch out of Cape Canaveral. And I, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that this is something that I get really excited about. And I've got a friend of mine who is also excited about it that happens to be a private pilot. So we flew up last Thursday to watch the launch from the local airport. And due to weather, we got we weren't able to land, but we got close enough 
that we could watch the launch from the air. So I got to see the SpaceX Falcon 9 launch last week that was delivering uh, supplies to the International Space Station. So we watched it from about maybe 15 or 20 miles out and about 4,500 feet, which was absolutely spectacular. And what was really quite incredible about it is, you know, we've, we see lots of rocket launches here in South Florida. You can see them 100 miles away. But what was really great about this was we got to see the first stage booster come down and land itself on the pad successfully. And I think it was the, the 44th successful recovery from SpaceX. So it's one of those things now where we used to think it was impossible to land a, a first stage booster like that and reuse it. This particular booster had been used three times already, so it's really cutting down on the cost of getting to, to space. And it landed successfully. It was a beautiful, amazing thing to see. And I kept thinking about it through with my computer science hat on about how much real-time telemetry it's processing, how the control systems work, the code that's running on there, because it's not a human piloting it down the boosters landing itself from the onboard computers like it is doing everything in a self-contained system and it's just amazing to see it come down and land itself perfectly right there on the pad i feel so sorry for eighth grade physics this year <laughs> you're yeah. gonna try to <laughs> we're gonna take them from those like paper sds rockets to now it has to land itself guys <laughs> yeah. yeah and we have to graph out the telemetry of it and find the angle of the parabola <laughs> well and that's that's what i like about the curriculum and, and this is where i think computer science really can help is that we can start to connect those pieces together. I mean, the basic Estes model rockets, the paper black powder model rockets that have been sold for 50 years, like they haven't changed much. It's still pretty much the same thing and it works. But if we add a little bit of technology to it, some sensors, some Python hardware, whatever it is to collect that data and then analyze it, we start to bridge the gap between here's a simple paper rocket and here's a, a Falcon 9 launching and recovering itself. You can see here's the data coming off it. Here's the, the information and what can we do with that data now that brings us closer to understanding how modern rockets work. It's pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. It would be even cooler if we could reuse all those CO2 cartridges. That's true, from the dragsters, um, yeah. Well, or no, from the rockets too, right? Well, they, the rockets are all paper. All paper, like the, okay. You're thinking of the CO2 cartridges oh, yeah, from our dragsters. That's correct, yep. that one too. But hey, those can be recycled. Okay. So at least we have that. We can recycle the <laughs> CO2 cartridges. All right, let's get on with this podcast. Well, we I do have one other win that's a shared <laughs> oh. win that we want to talk about. If you missed it, it, we were posting it on Twitter last week. We'll put it in the show notes. Kelly and I recorded a webinar episode for the V Brown Bag podcast where we talked about strategies and, and tips for learning and teaching Python. It's all on YouTube now, so you can watch it. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it was kind of a brief summary of ways to learn or Python for yourself. And the audience was IT professionals, people who are upskilling their, uh, themselves to be able to be more effective at their job or get the next job or whatever it is. Um, we went through kind of an overview of our teaching philosophy, a template for how to uh, learn pretty much anything, including Python, and then some hacks for how to learn better and faster. So we'll put that in the show notes. I think it was a, it was a lot of fun to do, and we have a lot of thanks for, for Chris and Joe, the co-hosts of the V Brown Bag podcast, for inviting us to do that. Yes, and if you haven't listened to some of their webinars, I know they have a series that's focused on Python. So, And they're just great. Uh, Chris is just a great guy. We met him at PyCon. Actually, we met him pre-PyCon via Twitter, which I thought was very cool. 
and just a nice guy and really eager to learn. So yeah. the plug in for them too. Yeah, I think their their Python series is pretty great. Like Ali Spatel is gonna gonna be presenting. Michael Kennedy is gonna yeah. be presenting. They've got a whole series of people that are presenting on various topics within Python. Um, including things like how to use asynchronous, you know, the async IO libraries in Python uh, or keywords. So a lot of good things in there that I'm I'm looking forward to. And they post all of their um, podcasts or their webinar episodes on YouTube after the fact. So if you missed a, a live screening, you can always catch it on YouTube also. So with that, let's move into our topic. Our topic this week is building lessons and planning the curriculums. You know, we're right at the beginning of a new school year, we've been doing a lot of ex exploration, understanding new things, a lot of discussion about what we can include in our, our lessons this year. But where we start every year is actually with our written curriculum. So we have a, a campus-wide master curriculum that includes all of our different grade level and content area curriculum, uh, or curricula, sorry, I have to get the, the plural right there of my Latin, I guess. It gives us all of that information. It's all in one place so we can look at how it all fits together, how it integrates, how it rolls up and progresses from grade level to grade level, as well as within subjects across a grade. So gives us a lot of good insights into our overall curriculum. Yes, and last year was our, our first year with the new curriculum for the middle school where we we changed up our course descriptions and what we were going to teach. So it's always good when you're looking at a curriculum to, to make sure that you've written your last year's curriculum and you're constantly adding to and modifying, not necessarily the written curriculum that you were referring to or the standards and everything, but how you're going to teach it and how you're going to meet those standards and how you're going to make sure that the objectives for each year are covered. And so it's a great opportunity to reflect, which we do constantly, and from that reflection, bring on um, some new ideas to, to enhance those learning objectives. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I like to think of this, uh, and when I first started teaching last year, I was thinking of this as layers that would happen. So, you know, the top layer was your written curricula and standards mm -hmm. across everything, right? That, that's the big, the top layer. And then at the bottom layer, you have your, your lesson plans. You have your day-to-day. -day. Here's what I'm going to teach today. Here's how I'm going to you know, make it all come together. Here's what I'm going to communicate. Here's what I want the students to take away from this le individual lesson. And then in the middle is kind of the glue between the two, right? That's our kind of teaching curriculum or something that we put together that's, that connects that day-to-day -day learning with the overall learning objectives and standards that we're going for either as a school or a district or even national standards. Yeah, that's, uh, I was just looking up, trying to get the exact jargon, but there's this that explicit, this written curriculum that we have for the school. It's this hidden curriculum, this kind of idea, and I think that's really cool about computer science is that we have a lot of hidden curriculum of these soft skills, this resilience, this persistence, some people, we actually have our hidden curriculum written into our, into our overall school-wide curriculum. It's called the social-emotional learning. And then there's the actual teaching curriculum. So we're going to, when we talk about our curriculum planning in this episode, we're actually talking about the day-to-day, -day, the hidden with the, the lesson plan curriculum. Yeah. 
And if you're new to teaching or you're more of a coder and less of a teacher like I was and still kind of am, right? I'm working on it. But just to give you some context for why this is important, why this matters, is because teaching has changed a lot. Education and learning has changed a lot. Our idea of learning has changed a lot over the years. You know, we, it used to be when I was a student growing up that we'd be, you know, doing a lot of rote learning, a lot of memorization and recall of that information. So our tests were based on how well could you recall the information. We did a lot of exercises, a lot of problem sets, a lot of prove that you know how to do this. We also were doing it because it was, we were told it was important. You're going to need to know this someday. I'm sorry, like I, there's not everything that I learned in school I use on a day-to-day -day basis. I typically don't use the periodic table on a day-to-day -day basis, but I know how to find it on Google if I need it. So now what we do is we are going to more of that understanding the relationships between things, understanding why something is important or how it fits with the other parts of your knowledge. And so when we're testing or we're assessing knowledge, we're looking for understanding and application and reapplication to other areas, not just can you regurgitate the facts as they were presented to you. That's very good to to keep in mind because this was kind of how that philosophy was when I started teaching last year because I was not that sage on the stage. And I think that was something that you might have experienced when, and I experienced when I was in school, that my teacher knew everything. My teacher was the one that gave me the information that I couldn't find that information anywhere else. But we know that that time has gone. That's passe because we have Google and we have this this opportunity to acquire our own knowledge and to figure out and test our understanding somewhere else besides with that teacher. So that is that then now aspect of we now have the students acquiring a lot of their own knowledge. Mm -hmm. We are their facilitators. We guide them through these experiences. And that's really important with this, this curriculum planning that we keep that in mind that it's not just Python coding or it's not just us giving them the code we're now gonna make them be in charge of their own learning. That's right, and I think if you are a trainer, if you work with adults, you see a lot more of the direct learning, right? A lot of those soft skills, the persistence, the resiliency has been acquired already, otherwise they probably wouldn't have gotten as far as they have. But what you do see is a lot of the, I need the direct knowledge, I need to understand how this works, I need to know how it relates into all the other knowledge that I have, how to integrate it, and that's something that you know we're trying to set more and more up in the early stages of learning and development so that by the time our students become adults, they're very proficient at being able to acquire knowledge either in a self-directed, self-paced manner or when they go to an in-person training or take a course, they're really maximizing the, the effect of the time that they have there. And I actually had a, a good friend of mine who's taking a new position at a, a new school, new role, new position, new grade level, asked me for advice on how to teach robotics because I had been teaching robotics in the past and he's, he was saying, I don't know enough about robotics. I said, you don't need to, you're a great teacher. Make sure you stylize it in this idea where the kids are finding the knowledge, the kids are doing the, the in, inquiry and make it more project-based and roll with it. Just roll with it yeah. and keep on with your, your teaching skills. Yeah, so that kind of go, rolls right into our philosophy of teaching and why we do things the way we do. So this will help frame the conversation we have around curriculum and the choices that we're making in our day-to-day -day lesson planning and our kind of middle 
curriculum between the, the top level and the bottom level. Right? And let me just explain. So as we go, we actually, I'm pretty proud of this teaching philosophy. This is something that, you know, you could put on your resume had we, if we ever did want to leave, which I don't think we'll ever leave Pinecrest. How about we put it on like a, um, like a speaker bio uh, speaker or like a bio. synopsis <laughs> for a talk or something like that? Let's not talk about no, resumes. But, but here's what I'm saying. So as we go through our teaching philosophy, we're going to do it a little bit different. We have through some points. We're going to go through our teaching philosophy and how we use this to build out our curriculum because I think it's important that your teaching philosophy is actually part of what you teach. So we're, we're going to see how this goes for us because okay. we haven't done this. Okay. <laughs> well, you guys are getting it fresh and raw from, from uh, like the inception here. So as teachers, we believe first that true learning comes from multiple sources and it's earned from failure. What better way than how we do this on a constant basis. We honestly, I introduced so many sources. I tried to limit a little bit in the beginning because the kids get a little bit overwhelmed, but I do show them on day one uh, um, an activity where here's a source of information. Now take what you just learned from this information and try out a challenge. And if you get it wrong, it's okay. And we build that into, into our classroom. Right. And that's one of the nice things about computer science, especially at these early stages where we're just learning or practicing things, is that failure is cheap and it doesn't hurt us. Right. And so we can get over some of those uh, fears or that apprehension that a lot of students have of getting the wrong answer by saying, OK, you survived. You're still breathing. Right. Like it didn't work. You got an error. So what? Let's fix it. You know, let's let's repeat through it so that process of failure and have it not working, not working, not working is, is part of the learning process. In fact, it's a critical piece of the learning process because once you have that breakthrough and it works, you, one, get the immediate gratification, right? That dopamine hit to your brain. It's like, yes, it worked. And then you also have gone through that process of understanding all the things that didn't work to get you to the correct answer. And that's the secret that I tell my students is I'm not a fantastic coder. I've just been through so many errors and so many failures over the course of my coding career that I know where they all sit now, right? And I know when I encounter them that one, it's not a big deal. And two, I've usually seen something like that in the past and I know how to fix it. Yeah, and the beauty of coming from multiple sources, I think we do that a lot and we're planning on continuing to use that this year, is the idea of we teach a certain way in class. We provide challenges in class, and then at home we give them a, a different way of learning the same concept. And I'm really excited about Tinker offering up a, a microbit activity for the sixth graders. We, we haven't seen it yet, hasn't been launched yet, but I'm hoping it's going to be just as good. But the idea of trying out a for loop in class and then going home and practicing it a different way might help them to develop a better understanding or a different way of looking at that activity. Right, and this leads right into our next point, which is that students learn at different paces, and that is amazing, right? And I think what you may have what you may have experienced or what you may have seen sometimes is that you know it's easy to get frustrated by students who take a little bit longer to learn the same content, or right, or it's easy to praise students who quickly just get it and it just happens. But what's amazing about this is that each student in that process, if they can really individualize it and incorporate those different sources and learn from their failures, 
each student's individual personal learning journey goes at different paces, but often results in these beautiful, unpredictable outcomes that are really great to see. Like that's why student project day, when everyone's demoing their projects, is one of my favorite days because I know the students that got there really quickly, who were really proficient and capable at getting their project done. And then I know the students that struggled all the way through and then had some sort of breakthrough right at the end where it just clicked and they said, oh, I get it now. And they get, come up with this amazing project that they wouldn't have otherwise seen if they hadn't gone through the struggle. Yeah. And and I used to teach in what's called the MYP or the middle years program of the IB. And with the with that, they have certain criteria. And we sort of use that philosophy in our class. We have specific criteria that we want the students to learn. And as long as they are on a positive growth trend, we consider that learning. And I can't find anyone out there who would argue against that not being learning. As long as there's a positive trend in knowledge being acquired and an understanding happening, then that's just amazing. And, and we really hone on in. I think what would be great is if we can get those kind of growth trends printed out for the parents and then they wouldn't be so stressed out if you know their their child struggles a little bit in the beginning. Yeah, the data science geek in me is like thinking about like a scatter plot, Absolutely. right? And a best fit line and as long as that best fit line has a positive, you know, trend to it, it it totally works. And we'll we'll get on making that for this year. <laughs> That's a goal. Check where's the pencil, where's the paper right. for that. Right. The next point is actively connecting to your learning improves stickiness. And we do that a lot trying to find ways like I just did with the MYP is I connect to something in my past, something that is important to me, and that keeps that idea stuck in my head. And we really stress that a lot in our classroom. Right. And that only works if the learning experience is owned by the student. I can't make it personal for a student, right? I can't make it something that's relevant to them. All I can do as a guide and as a coach is to offer them the opportunity to connect to it, right? To find ways to make suggestions, to give them options. And so when they are owning their learning experience, they're actively making these connections. They're saying, oh, I know how this fits with something else that I did, right? And I'm hoping that this next year, now that we have students with more experience, they're gonna be able to connect it back to last year and say, oh, I remember when we did that. Or when I did this before, I didn't really understand it, but now I get it. So that that process of actively connecting in an owned way by the students where they really feel personal ownership in their learning process makes it highly authentic, relevant, and a more effective way of learning. And there's many ways that you can get choice into your curriculum, that, that connecting part where it's owned by the student, um, whether it's about a passion that they like or you know maybe it's a time frame. We, some teachers don't like to give that, but you know you give somewhere in between this two weeks you need to have X completed. Or maybe just looking at a position or a place where they can sit in the classroom that allows them to have that connection. Maybe it's in the bean bag or maybe it's sitting in a chair changing up that idea. And this is going to allow them to own their learning experience. And we offer that a lot in our classroom. We're actually adding a new table into our classroom, which is going to be it's a large table. I'm not really sure. We're, we're still deciding on this. It's an eight-seater, eight eight-seated, 
eight-seater table. Eight seat. Eight seats. That's, you know, so much more fun, less fun. <laughs> eight-seat table, sort of like a large dining room, and I guess just allow maybe collaboration or to work on projects together and giving them that opportunity to choose where they want to learn can also help them to connect with the topic. Yeah, I mean, and luckily that's one of the nice things about being in Florida where our doors open out to the you know, outside. We also offer our students the opportunity at times to sit outside and code or to work together in pairs sitting on the sidewalk outside our classroom because it gives them uh, like a feeling of, of feeling connected and inspired potentially by the environment around them. True. This You brought up the point of the 20% time and the, the project, and that's something that we are going to continue this year. We might change up a couple of the checkpoints or the opportunities to complete. We truly believe that motivation comes by linking to a bigger, higher goal. Yeah. So this we're not just about teaching Python. We're not just going to say, here's how you write a for loop. Here's how you write a while true. But here's this goal. This is something that you've been dreaming about. And we may not be able to finish it in this quarter, but we're going to keep our eye on the prize and we're going to make this product as best as we can. Right. And I share that with my students. I try to role model that behavior. So at the beginning, I talk about my goals for the course. And my goal is that each student finds something that's personally interesting to them about computer science, something that they find fascinating or relevant, something that they want to do or a problem that they can solve using computer science, and I want to help them solve it. I want to help them do it so that they feel like they've accomplished something real and meaningful in the class. So that idea of linking to a bigger, higher goal is something that you can both coach them through, like help them identify it and help them size it appropriately, but then also role model that behavior for them as well to show them, here's what that looks like when I'm doing it as the teacher in the classroom. Every time we talk about this, I always drift back to the AI presentation with the professors from FAU yep. Learning Labs. And every time a student comes in, he, one of the professors asks, what's your major? And if they say, English, he always says, that's awesome, that's great. It's for, perfect. It's perfect for coding. That concept we take into our class that you don't have to be in there to produce a, a Python game or you don't have to be in there to be a, a top coder, but there is that higher goal. Yeah. And then the last one, I think this is important to both keep in mind as well as remind our students persistence and discipline always beats raw motivation because motivation can ebb and flow, right? It's a very ephemeral sort of thing sometimes. I can be motivated one day, like I get up in the morning, I'm like, I'm going to get this stuff done and then life happens. All the motivation, all the good intentions that I have at the beginning of the day may fall aside because other things have come up. It's nobody's fault. It's that these things happen. This is life. But persistence and determination, that discipline of saying, okay, I know that life has happened and I'm going to find a way to do this anyways. That's the sitting down to write code every day. That's the time that you're going to read. That's deciding to listen to a podcast in the car instead of like boring talk radio. So you guys are doing it. If you're listening to this podcast in the car, <laughs> congratulations, you're being persistent and disciplined, right? Hopefully you're learning something too. That idea of being persistent, being disciplined, is what gets you through to your end goal. It's not just having motivation. You need motivation also, but if I was asked to pick two out of the three, I would pick persistence and discipline. Hope for some motivation to come along also.
In a learning environment, we know that most times the student's motivation comes from grades. And one of the things that we like to do in our school is either A, not post grades right away, because we don't want the student's motivation to be a grade. We want the student's motivation to be a learning. And that helps to develop their persistence and their discipline in understanding computer science versus that raw motivation of earning a grade for computer science. It's something that I feel strongly, and I think, Sean, as I'm speaking for yourself, that you feel strongly that it's not about that A at the end of the, at the, end of the quarter. Although we like to, the most kids like to have it, but it's like that passion. They want to come back to our classroom. They come back in during lunchtime or after school, and they want to continue to to code at home. They take out the book, and sometimes sometimes finding out how we can beat their their motivation for earning a grade will help to develop more persistence. Grades are both absolutely necessary. And they're the first thing I could get rid of if I if I had a magic wand, right? Like they, students place a lot of emphasis on their grades. And in some ways it's one of the main signals that we have to them and for them to give to their parents about what they're actually learning at school. What I like to remind them is that grades are not an output. They're not the reward. They're not the outcome that we're seeking. They are a side effect or a byproduct of the educational process. So if I'm thinking of like education as a factory and I'm making cars, grades are like really just the the measurement of how good the cars are being made. The grades are not the output, the car is the output. So that's the the difference for them and helping them to understand that if they focus on the product, which is their own learning and their own knowledge and understanding, the grade will take care of itself. Yeah, so now we've got this philosophy and we've given you some examples of how we use that and how we think about it in our classroom and the way that we discuss it with our students we make it visible to them so that they understand our philosophy. Now, how do we take this philosophy, how do we take our curriculum and standards, and how do we merge those together and translate it down into an actionable plan for learning with our students. Yeah, and this is something I've been thinking about of having more of because uh, throughout the year last year, I changed up um, the order of a lot of the things and I moved around some topics and played around with different ways and we were really trying to figure out what worked best and what worked best in first quarter didn't necessarily pan out in fourth quarter. And so this roadmap, this way that what the students need to learn is something that we're going to be working on this year. And one of the things that I really liked going back to, again, my Udemy course with Colt still is this idea of identifying those learning objectives. He does a great job of doing what a teacher should do, putting the learning objectives in front of the student, not as the student will learn, but pretty much a a sense of questioning, you know, how will you learn this? by identifying those learning objectives, whether it's for the week or for the day, is a lot better than identifying them as the whole quarter or the whole year. You know, singling them out so that the students know exactly what they're gonna learn during that lesson is something that we're gonna focus on this year. Yep, I mean, it still has to fit into an overall structure, right? There's still the bigger picture of, 
I want to make sure this year, for example, that our students get exposed to data science and machine learning. And those are two areas that I want to focus on. And I know that I'm going to dedicate a significant chunk of time during the wheel to those areas, but I'm not going to be able to sit at the beginning of the quarter and say, okay, I'm going to use days 38 through 42 to cover machine learning. What I will say is like, okay, I, in weeks seven and eight, I want to be covering these topics and I will move it around as needed based on how fast the students are progressing. If they're ready sooner, I'll move it up. Or if there's a nice fit in, in the one, out, one lesson, because as we're learning it, as teachers are learning the best way to teach this, we move things around. We want that adaptability and flexibility to make it happen. Yeah. And then also to make sure that our learning activities are centered around our specific learning objectives. It's really important to have a specific learning activity that is going to come with a specific outcome, not necessarily, you know, A plus B equals C, but with a, a generalized outcome that can be assessed. There's a, I'll give an example because it's, it's an easy one from summer camp this year. So what I did with camp as I was teaching each week is not necessarily connected to the other weeks. I have some students who come back from week to week, but it's a different group of students each week of summer camp. So the smallest block or the smallest unit of learning that I have is one week in the summer camp, which is great because it's, I can really focus it on one concept that I want the students to learn, and I have five days to build up to that concept and help them implement it. So the first day is entirely exploratory around that topic to say, you know, for example, I wanted them to learn about RGB colors. So this concept that if I take a red light, a blue light, and a green light, and put them together in varying intensities, I can create an entire spectrum of light to the visible eye, right, to the human eye. So we start by talking about you know, light levels in general. Like we'll start with one light and we'll turn it on and off and, and look at the color that it produces. It's really bright or it's really dim and how the numbers that I give it as input affect the output of it. 255 is really bright, zero is really dim. And then I say, okay, now what if we put three of these lights together and we start to change them? Okay, now we can start to see different colors. Well, now how can I replicate a color? So we just are building up and building up and each of these learning activities is focused on the objective of understanding how the human eye perceives color, how computers represent color mathematically, and then how hardware is used to present that color to the user in a way that they can see it, and then how that's used in the things that they see all around them, like computer screens and phone screens and LED light boards and even the lights in your house that can change color with a smartphone. That's really cool. And I actually, that was such a, that's a good point to bring up because based on what you did this summer, I also, we also did that. And those, for example, the ones that I focused on were algorithms. My, my week was based on what are algorithms and how do we use them? And I introduced origami and following steps. That was one of the, the first activities I did during the week. I then worked on conditional statements and algorithms, and we did how we did procedures within a block. We played games with that. We also used that in order to build swishy fish. Right. <laughs> so it was something that I had a focus of making sure, you know, we only have a week with these kids right. during the, the camp, and we only have a year with our kids during, you know, the school year. We only have a quarter. And so we have to be 
specific. We have to be intentional with our teaching in order to, one, not only introduce that concept, but to introduce it with, with different sources of information. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to allow them to fail at it, to try it, and to figure things out. But at the end of the day, we have to give some sort of assessment. We have right. to make sure that we're measuring that growth. Do they understand algorithms? Do they understand RGB colors? Can they, can they persist in something as irritating as building origami and, and have a product produced by following a set of plans? Right, and so this pattern that we've applied or this arc that we use for the learning starts with exploration, right? It starts with demonstrating something or exposing students to a new idea or a new concept or just showing them something, asking good questions about it. What is this? How does it work? How do you think it works? Having them, the students, ask the questions that matter to them about this concept. Then we do some teaching, right, where I'm sharing information with them or I'm showing them how it works or explaining something, answering some of those questions it's for them. It's called direct teaching. Direct teaching. Direct That's instruction. Right. That's right. <laughs> so some direct instruction, but also some of that is guiding the students through their own research process. How can you answer some of those questions? What are some good sources for that? What would, what how do you Google that, right? Like that's a great question, but maybe it's not something you can Google easily. So how can you start to break it down into smaller pieces? And then we go into some practice. So some here's some exercises or maybe something that is a little bit of a structured, canned approach to, to learning it or practicing it. And then we go into the application. How can you apply this to something that's your own idea or your own creation? So this five steps fits really nicely into a standard school week where Monday we can be exploring and by Friday we can be applying. Students work at different paces. Sometimes they might be ready for application by Wednesday. Sometimes they might just be getting to application Friday morning, you know, at the end of the week. But this gives us as teachers the ability to, to work with the students in a way that lets them direct more of that learning and becomes more of an exploration and understanding activity rather than a, I'm just going to directly instruct you on this topic on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're going to do a review and then Friday, I'm going to quiz you on it. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that five weeks. So one of those great, um, and you actually produced a really good lesson plan for us for your, for your interview. But that idea of the hook or the exploratory activity, you, you know, maybe it's a smaller concept. Maybe it's just an, an introduction to, I'm trying to think basics again, but maybe it's just an introduction to pushing a button, if right. button A is pushed. Maybe it's this, the hook lesson and the, the research and the exploration and the assessment can happen within one day. Right. And sometimes you'll see this reiterative cycle with us and the way that we teach just depends on that topic. So again, there's always this sort of, this pattern that we do follow this roadmap of here's our here are kind of our objectives here's the exploration here are the specific activities here's how we're going to access assess it and we're going to have some sort of closure and you know for me the assessment is more along the lines of did the student demonstrate understanding by being able to take that concept and apply it can they explain the concept in their own words is it something that they're using their own voice to describe, right? That that student voice is coming through clearly, even if it's not 100% correct. Maybe there's some room there to build on that 
that error and say, okay, well, let me understand, explain this to me in a better way and, and then further build their understanding. Can they share it with others? Have they shared it with others? Have they been reflective about what they've learned? So that assessment process is something that I do, to be honest, rather organically right now. I don't have a you know, numeric assessment. It's not quantified in any way. But I am always seeking to check their, their understanding and assess, did they really get this? And if they didn't, what can I do to help them lock it in or how, help them go deeper? And you made a good point. Those, those items are those formative assessments. We'll post on, I have an article from, that I got this summer from PBL on different ways of assessing formatively. It doesn't need to be a full written code. It doesn't even need to be five lines of code. Mm -hmm. It could be a simple exit card or a post-it. It could just be, tell me one thing you learned from today, and this is that assessment. As long as there is a specific outcome that you are searching for, and the kids can not, not necessarily regurgitate it. We don't want a regurgitated answer, but we want some sort of answer to provide an assessment, to keep that positive learning chart going in that, that upward growth. That's what we're searching for. And make sure that it's closed well. Like I think that, that that's the thing that I wish I had done more of last year is how to effectively close out a lesson or a unit or a concept with students in a way that was more reflective and brought them a sense of completion, that they had accomplished something, it was complete, and that there was a next step that led them into the next piece of learning. And that, that's something I think that, I don't know, speaking for, for everyone, I don't want to, but that's something that's really I struggle with as well. You, you want to get in all that information. You want to keep learning, or maybe there, there's a, a zen going on. You lose track of time. That little reminder to yourself that being, oh, you have two more minutes left of the class period is something that might help us to close out that lesson. That leads kind of into the next part, which is after it's done, how do you know it worked? How do you know that it's working? How do you test yourself to make sure that what you're doing is working, that it's being effective? And one of the things that I, I did at the beginning of every quarter after the first one was to ask students, what did you hear about this course? What do you expect in this course? And how do you feel right now walking in? So kind of trying to hit that intellectual, the social, and the emotional parts of where they are on day one of the course. And I'm specifically looking to understand what they're hearing from their friends that have taken the course beforehand. And the things that that were most affirming to me were the thing were, was the feedback that this course is really interesting, you make it really fun, I heard it's really hard, but you can get it. Those were the things that were like, okay, that's affirming to me, right? Like that's a positive affirmation on the teaching that I'm doing. The things that get concerning, concerning for me, the ones that I'm always listening for, is what's really easy, or it's really fun, or you know, without that corollary of it's fun and interesting, or that you know, or it's just okay, right? That middle of the road, like, eh, it's okay, it's fine. That those to me are the things that I listen for to say, okay, maybe I I need to find a a, a better way to address this aspect of it. Those are the the flags for me to go dig deeper and figure out what's going on. And that. That's at that closure of that metacognitive approach that we constantly talk about. Something to, to 
just keep in mind when you're closing out your lesson is how can you add some reflection or did you add reflection or did you add a time for your students to really process the information? How do you know? And I think that's a constant. If we can, we can ask ourselves, how do we know? How do we know that we did a great lesson? How do we know that the students learned something? How do we know that the students are in a positive growth trend? And if you can constantly reflect as well, while you're teaching, you can't really go wrong. Yes, you might make a mistake, but oh well, you know, it's all about the learning process. And I think anyone who's teaching computer science, anyone who's teaching in general, knows that it is not always going to be smooth. And that if you claim to never, you know, not be able to make mistakes, you're gonna have a rough time. Mistakes are part of the process and we own them and we learn from them. So as we go through this, you know, my plan for this year is to iteratively improve across the year. I felt like third quarter this past year was my best wheel. It was the where I had most things figured out along the way, and we weren't yet on the fourth quarter where students were starting to look ahead to the summer. And that being said, I'm still really proud of my fourth quarter students because they stuck with it and they were into it and they got focused on it. They were really engaged with it far more than I was expecting for you know, the May and June months out of the year. Yeah. And as we go back into school, we start on Friday. We'll be, we'll be touching more and more on what we're doing within the curriculum. We have a, a great season ahead of us on the podcast. We have a lot of topics lined up and we can't wait to share. We're also looking for more guests as well. So, you know, with this summer, you've heard a lot from Kelly and myself because it's, you know, more convenient for us as we're running around in various places this summer for us to get together, but we would love to hear more voices from the teaching community. So for those of you who we've already met, you may be getting an email from us soon about uh, joining us on the podcast to talk about a specific topic. If you have a topic you'd like to share or discuss with us on the air in a purely fun, conversational sort of way, you can always find us either on Twitter at Teaching Python or you can go to our website, which is teachingpython.fm. There's a contact form there, and we read every single one of the contact submissions. There's some, been some really great ones in there. There's There was a great one that I haven't gotten to yet on the air. I'm going to bring that up for one of the future episodes, which is around using the Selenium package for browser automation to do web scraping, which looks like it's a really powerful way of uh, grabbing information from the internet using Selenium, which is the way a browser sees the internet, not just the way some of the Python packages see the internet. So pretty exciting stuff coming up. Kelly and I are going to be presenting in November at uh, a conference. We're going to be talking about the classroom of 2024, so uh, five years from now, and the way that technology is going to be integrated more and more into the classroom. So that's going to be at the Florida Council of Independent Schools. In Orlando. In Orlando, Florida. So if you're a member of that organization, uh, we'll be presenting there on the administrator track, I believe. And then if you are interested in meeting up with us at any other conferences, let us know. We're starting to plan our conference schedule this year. So we're looking for opportunities to connect with other people face-to-face where we can. So let us know if there's any conferences that we should be looking for. And also in April, we are having our Innovation Institute as well. So we'll go ahead and plug that because April in Florida is a great place to be. And while we're talking about plugs, I had to plug, I don't know if you saw this one from Nick Tolervey. He he posted on GitHub 
a hypercard inspired GUI framework for Moo. And it, his video, I don't know if you, have, if you haven't checked it out, it is great. And just the idea of showing kids a different way of interactivity within Python is very exciting. So give him feedback. He loves feedback. He's only giving announcements on, on Twitter, but I know he's still reading things from Twitter. So check it out. It's on his Twitter page and also in his GitHub I mean, it's a Piper card, right? Piper card. Piper card. Man, I don't know if I'm ready to open up the Hyper card <laughs> box it's, again. It looks it was, so easy. I, I know, but it was like years of my life spent in a Hyper card when I was growing up and in, in uh, my ear, early years of college. He's a great educator. Um, he he's comes from an education background. So during his video presentation, I was sitting there watching it while the kids were at the pool and I was like, oh, I totally got this. <laughs> so there goes another thing to add to our list of things to, to try out. So nice. Well, I think that will do it for us this week. Uh, again, if you want to reach out to us on Twitter or on the web, if you have questions, you have ideas for topics you'd like to cover, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free to reach out to us. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly. Signing off. Mm -hmm.